bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. This is the August 23rd, 2022 podcast. One week ago today, President Joe Biden signed into law the Inflation Reduction Act, thereby enacting legislation that according to the Joint Committee of Taxation, raises a net total tax of about $90 billion over 10 years. The bill includes additional tax increases of about $360 billion and additional expanded and extended energy tax credits and deductions of about $270 billion over the same 10 years. Among the tax increases is a 15% corporate minimum tax on book income. Now, this legislation came nearly 18 months after President Biden took office and eight months after Senator Joe Manchin effectively killed Biden's Build Back Better Act. The Build Back Better Act was a much larger and more expansive bill, a bill that included extensions and or expansions of the Low Income Housing Tax Credit, New Market Tax Credit, and Historic Rehabilitation Tax Credit. Now, many observers assume that attempts to pass any significant clean energy legislation were dead. To many surprise, in late July, Manchin and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announced that they had reached an agreement on potential legislation, which ultimately became the Inflation Reduction Act. As I said, there are many significant clean energy provisions in the bill, which we'll discuss in a moment. However, it is important to note that the provisions sought by those in the affordable housing, community development, and historic preservation worlds were, generally speaking, not included in this bill. It's also important to note that there may be opportunities for those provisions to be added to a year-end tax bill, if there is such a bill. We'll discuss that in a future podcast. Today's podcast is focused on the provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act and what stakeholders can and or should do now in light of the provisions that were enacted. We'll also discuss some of the many issues for which Treasury will need to issue some degree of guidance in order to provide clarity. I say Treasury and or the IRS. And before we get to the interview portion of today's podcast, let me take a moment to provide an overview of the key provisions likely to be most important to our tax credit Tuesday audience. If I don't cover one of these items or don't cover the podcast, please send an email to cpas at novago.com or reply to me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Novogratic. Now, as regards renewable energy, the headline provisions are extensions and enhancements of investment tax credit and production tax credit for facilities that start construction after January 1 of this year, 2022. The extensions are through the year 2032 with an interesting statutory transition that occurs at the start of 2025, which I'll address in a moment. The enhancements are that the ITC is increased back up to 30% of eligible costs and the piece PC is extended at $26 per megawatt hour. That means, of course, that the higher rates are retroactive to the beginning of 2022. Now, there are two caveats. First, the extensions are for properties that began or begin construction before January 1, 2025. And to receive the full credit, eligible properties must adhere to some labor requirements, which we'll discuss later in the podcast. So in short, the investment tax credit, production tax credit are extended, but the benefits are based on meeting certain conditions. I'll note there's also a 10% bonus for using domestic content in a facility, which could be a significant boost for many developments. Now let's discuss the 2025 transition I mentioned. Starting in 2025, the investment tax credit and production tax credit transition to technology neutral credits under section 45 cap Y and 48 cap D. And that's for facilities that start construction by the end of 2032. I'll note that ITC and production tax rates stay the same in 2025, but they are expanded. These credits and rates are expanded to more technologies. And that's how we get to an extension of those credits through 2032. Now, the legislation also includes a provision to make standalone energy storage, think batteries, and interconnection property eligible for the 30% investment tax credit. The Inflation Reduction Act allows taxpayers that did not generally pay federal income taxes to elect a direct payment 
of certain clean and renewable energy tax incentives. That's a direct payment in lieu of using the tax credits, I should say, syndicating the tax credits. Now, the types of taxpayers that do not generally pay federal income taxes and are therefore under the law, the new law allowed to receive a direct payment include state and local governments, Indian tribes, and Alaska Native Claims Corporations. Now, for taxable entities, they're not eligible as a general rule for the direct pay, but the bill does create an alternative option to monetizing tax credits. This would be an alternative to syndicating the tax credits or claiming them themselves. In lieu of a direct payment option, starting in 2023, taxable entities will generally be allowed to transfer some or all of certain credits to unrelated parties with the cash proceeds of that transfer not being considered taxable income. It's important to note that the transfer has to be in cash. Now, looking beyond renewable energy, the new law significantly enhances the Section 45 Cap Q carbon oxide sequestration credit. Under the new law, any carbon capture, direct air capture, or carbon utilization project that begins construction by the end of 2032 will be eligible for the credit. And in this situation, developers will have the option to receive direct pay for the full value of the tax credit for the first five years after the project is placed in service. With an option of direct pay fully phasing out for the final seven years, they receive the credit. Another provision in the new law allows a three-year carryback and 22-year carry forward for the production tax credit, investment tax credit, Section 30 Cap C alternative fuel vehicle credit, and the Section 45 Cap Q carbon oxide sequestration credit. Now, prior to the bill, they were allowed only a one-year carryback and a 20-year carry forward. So once again, there's now a three-year carryback and a 22-year carry forward. Obviously, the three-year carryback is the more significant of those two changes. I said earlier that affordable housing community development provisions generally did not make it into the final bill, but there are a handful of renewable energy changes that overlap with affordable housing and community development. The overlap includes the section 45 cap bill, 25 cap C, 25 cap D, all of those credits, as well as the 179 cap D deduction. Regarding the section 45 cap L energy efficient home tax credit, which is often used in concert with low building test finance properties, it was extended for 10 years. And similarly of importance, the 45 cap bell credit no longer reduces low income housing tax credit basis. This change or these changes should further encourage the use of the 45 cap bell credit with low income housing tax credit properties. Regarding other energy related housing provisions in the Internal Revenue Code, the new law extends and or modifies the Section 179 Cap D Energy Efficient Commercial Property Deduction, the Section 25 Cap C Non Business Energy Property Credit, and the Section 25 Cap D Residential Energy Efficient Property Credit. We will have a separate podcast next week where we're going to discuss the implications of the Inflation Reduction Act for bowl housing. We'll discuss it in part during this podcast. We'll go into more depth next week. The last significant clean energy provision I'll mention here is incentives for the manufacturing of key renewable energy components in the United States. This is found in Section 48 Cap C. The new law expands the qualifications for the Section 48 Cap C credit and provides an additional $10 billion in credits for Treasury to allocate. Now, I have just shared a lot of information <laughs> And in today's show notes, I'll share a link to a blog post that discusses the provisions. But clean energy was just a portion of the bill. There are some other provisions that we'll discuss today. Perhaps the most significant, as I noted earlier, is the establishment of a 15% minimum tax on corporations with an average adjusted financial statement income of more than $1 billion. Now, we often refer to this as the tax on book income. And that, of course, brings into some questions as to how community development tax credits will be affected by the legislation. The legislation does allow, I say legislation, but it is enacted. So I should say the new law allows for some adjustments, most notably for accelerated depreciation amortization, which should help protect the value of community development tax incentives. The bill does allow the long living tax credit, new market tax credit, store tax credit, and rural energy tax credits to be claimed against the minimum tax. But for those in the clean development tax credit community, there are some outstanding questions, including how to account for a portion method of accounting.
And we can make certain assumptions for what Congress intended. But as we'll discuss later, it'll be very helpful and even needed in some cases for Treasury to issue some guidance. For example, Treasury could confirm that using methods such as the portion amortization method is acceptable and doing so won't adversely affect the way in which a corporation calculates their book income. Now, these are just some of the questions that have come up with respect to the legislation. Virtually every day, stakeholders are identifying new questions and situations for which the answer isn't obvious. Because of that, I'd like to encourage listeners to work with experienced tax advisors who are tracking the act and the implications of it. Doing so could help you prepare for any future issues as they arise. Now today, two returning guests join me to talk about the reconciliation legislation and what it means to the clean energy world, as well as other community development areas. First, joining me is Nat Ng, my partner in Novogratis Wallet Creek, California office. Nat is one of the leaders of our clean energy practice and is the chair of one of our renewable energy tax credit conferences every year. Nat's clients include stakeholders in solar, wind, and battery storage. He works with developers, sponsors, syndicators, and investors in the green energy space and has unique insights into the details of the bill. And joining Nat today is Peter Lawrence, Novogratz Director of Public Policy and Government Relations. Peter has his finger on the pulse of Congress and the rest of the federal government when it comes to a broad swath of issues in which Novogratz is involved. Peter is an expert on affordable housing and has deep knowledge of community development, historic preservation, and renewable energy issues. You've heard Peter many times before on this podcast. Now, the focus of today's podcast is to address some of the implications of this new law. Our hope is to answer questions you might have and provide an understanding of what we know and, similarly important, areas where we are awaiting guidance. Now, we're going to start by talking about a couple of the big picture items, the 15% minimum tax on book income and some of the cross-cutting provisions in the bill, provisions that cut across a variety of renewable energy provisions. Then we'll look at some of the details of the various clean energy provisions, focusing on what we know and where we expect to need further guidance. After that, we'll talk about some of the provisions that affect affordable housing again, and we'll discuss also there where guidance is needed. This is a monumental energy bill. There's a lot to talk about today. So let's get started. Peter and Matt, welcome back to Tashkara Tuesday. Thanks for having me back, Mike. Yeah, likewise. L- like, always appreciate the opportunity. So, Peter, let me start with you. The inclusion of a 15% corporate minimum tax on book income is one of those provisions that indirectly could have a major impact on the community development tax incentive world. Now, I say could have because it might not. <laughs> Please explain to our listeners some of the key issues that we should be watching in what areas we'll need guidance from the Treasury Department. Thanks, Mike. And, uh, you know, the proposed minimum book tax was a concern for many in the community development tax instead of industries, given the fact that we were concerned the potential impacts on investor and private tax credits. Various iterations of the proposal, you know, might have potentially had challenges in investors getting the tax benefits they expecting in their investments. But fortunately, there have been some elements of the legislation that provide some comfort. For example, as you pointed out, you can use the various development tax incentives against your minimum book tax. So that's important. And, and potentially having uh, those, uh, that ability may entice certain corporations to increase their appetite if they were considerably lower than the 15% effective tax rate. But one thing, we'll, big question we've received as this legislation was being developed is what happens with tax losses. And late in the process, as Congress was considering, they did allow for accelerated depreciation to be counted against the minimum book tax as well. Uh, however, we, as you point out, like the uh, concerns we have is that the proportional amortization method of accounting combines the effect of losses and benefits under the line. And so the, there's some uncertainty on how the calculation of the book minimum tax will be interpreted with investors using the proportional amortization. And so we will be seeking guidance from Treasury 
ensure that for purposes of a minimum book tax, that they can claim, for example, accelerated depreciation, but still report for purposes of reporting the financial statements using the proportional amortization method. And so that's something we're going to pursue with Treasury from the Democratic working groups. Great. Thank you for that, Peter. And I would emphasize that I do think that the proportional amortization methodology where you report the loss, it's below the line. So it's in part of your tax provision. And this minimum tax is based upon your book income before tax provision. That I do believe the better reading of the statute is that you should report your allocable share of book losses adjusted for tax depreciation, as you noted, above the line for purpose of this calculation. But we will need guidance from Treasury to confirm that interpretation. And I also like to emphasize your other point that if you're a corporation out there that wasn't paying much in the way of federal taxes or any federal taxes, and now because of this change, you're going to be paying a minimum tax now you might become an investor in of the tax credits. So there is the potential for this to expand the number of investors in of the tax credits and religious credits and other types of tax incentives. So that'll be interesting to see how that develops over time. I will note to listeners that back in 1993, <laughs> when the lovely tax was made permanent, there was also notable increases in taxes on many corporations. And that did lead a number of those corporations to begin investing in tax credits so they could bring their effective tax rate back down to what it was before the 93 Act was enacted, or at least lower it so it was closer to what it was before. So I would like to next turn to the actual clean energy provisions, really the focus of the podcast. But before getting the specifics of each individual green energy provision or class of provisions, there are some cross-cutting provisions. The law has several provisions that cut across multiple energy tax incentives. Call it provisions, call it requirements, call it conditions. So Peter, if you could explain some of these cross-cutting requirements or provisions to listeners, and most importantly, maybe what listeners should be doing to address these cross-cutting provisions. So in, in general, the law sets up a, a two-tier structure of many of the incentives. So there's a, a base rate where if you don't meet certain conditions, you're eligible for. But if you meet the, these requirements that you're able to get, what is often referred to as the bonus rate, which is, for example, the 30% IPC or the $26 per lot for PTC. And the, you know, one of the key cross-cutting provisions are regarding labor or specifically for veiling wage uh, and apprenticeship requirements. So if your property is paying for railing wage, then you're eligible for the bonus rate. And if your property has a certain percentage of your labor hours conducted via an apprenticeship program, then the combination of those two enables you to get their bonus rate. I will note that Given that the challenges there may be in certain circumstances of meeting the apprenticeship, that the law does allow for a penalty. We pay $50 per total legal hours if you don't meet the apprenticeship requirements. But so that there is a possibility to get the, the bonus rate if you don't completely comply with apprenticeship requirements. But in general, obviously, I think for those wanting to maximize their resources, there's an incentive to meet the apprenticeship requirements. And so I think that will be something that we'll be seeking clarifications from Treasury on what's required to, to meet uh, those two. There's a lot of details yet to be really ironed out, and we'll just have to see when Treasury comes out with its guidance. Yeah, Peter, I think I'll add that it's a multiple of five times the base rate for satisfying these provisions. So that's why there's quite frankly, a lot of focus by developers and investors across the board. And, it, you know, I also find it interesting. I hope somebody comes out with a map one of these days to sort of show, you know, what <laughs> areas geographically might be, you know, perhaps maybe more impacted by these provisions. Hopefully someone's already working on that. Yeah. Apprenticeship programs are not necessarily available every single area of the country. So definitely it'll be harder to meet 
those areas of the meter cities. Right, right. You definitely get a range of uh, uh, potential impacts, I think, depending on where projects are constructed. So thank you for those insights, Peter, and thanks for sharing your insights as well there, Nat, from the ground, if you will. And Nat, you obviously work in the clean energy space. Many of our listeners know you from prior podcasts and your various podcast appearances talking about different clean energy matters. The new law presents enormous opportunities for our clients as a firm. And I was just wondering what initially are some of the most common questions that clients are coming to you with? Yeah, there's a, <laughs> a wide range of questions. And quite frankly, I think, uh, you know, there's been a lot of discussions and our phones are sort of ringing off their, their hooks, so to speak, right now. Although I guess <laughs> phones don't really have hooks anymore. For that. No, no, you don't dial a phone either, but we don't. <laughs> yeah, in terms of most common questions, you know, going back to Peter's comment on the cross-cutting provisions with prevailing wages and apprenticeship requirements, that's definitely a key question. I probably should elaborate that. <laughs> uh, there's certain exceptions to that. <laughs> that we should know just for the benefit of the audience. There's a one megawatt AC cap or a requirement there so that projects underneath that threshold don't need to satisfy these requirements. And then also there is a, a period of time where a project can begun construction and not be subject to such requirements. And that's within or at 60 days after the secretary publishes guidance, which many believe will be four to six months. <laughs> Peter, I think you said it could be 270 days after <laughs> Jan 1, 2023, <laughs> whatever that date is. <laughs> Hopefully we'll get guidance sooner. <laughs> That's when Congress would like it. We'll see if Treasury produces it by then. Yeah, certainly look forward to that as a practitioner in the weeds here. Yeah, there's a lot of questions on that. A lot of questions on domestic content, what domestic content is, which we'll dive into further. And then I get a lot of crystal ball questions, quite frankly. <laughs> you know, these transferability rules, I think we're all, you know, trying to understand what they mean or how they can result in things being structured differently. <laughs> we also come up with a lot of ideas that are, you know, we will probably want to get guidance on. There's certain ways that I think things could be structured with these rules that probably weren't intended. <laughs> so it's definitely exciting times for accountants and attorneys and <laughs> others participating in the industry. And are you getting the question about, should I claim production tax credits versus massive tax credits as well? Yeah, we're getting that a lot. Sort of seeing a range of questions <laughs> out there. There's a few clients that were, you know, fairly proactive, suggesting that there'll be this option. But while wow, even before Build Back Better <laughs> was uh, folks were asking a while back to run some analysis. And it's interesting. Quite frankly, I think it will probably impact a certain segment of the market, probably, or most likely utility scale projects that have low costs, you know, low lower revenues relative to high production factors. Okay. Uh, so utility scale in certain parts of the country, like down in the Southeast will, you know, probably, uh, check these boxes and it's really, uh, sort of a complicated, uh, math exercise, some of which <laughs> not exactly sure how to calculate yet. Right. But one thing's for sure, what does need to be factored in the math is with investment tax credit transactions, there's this concept of a fair market value step up, which usually gets tied in with the income approach in fair market value appraisals. So when comparing or trying to compare apples to apples as close as possible, or make an orange look like an apple, so to speak, I think. What that entails is really comparing uh, PTCs to a stepped-up ITC value. Got it. And where it gets a little bit complicated and my crystal ball is proving unreliable is with the transferability 
provisions, sort of adding potential complexity or changing the world at a minimum, <laughs> there'll probably be some disruption, is the fact that, you know, the tax equity markets might change. So, you know, is PTC pricing before the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, how much is that going to stay status quo versus fundamentally changing in the future with, you know, traceability and the fact that it might allow investors to buy credits on a year-to-year -year basis, which they couldn't do before. So <laughs> anyways, lots of possibilities there that, you know, will definitely deserve and more, you know, further attention and analysis. So I could have asked you what the clients are asking you about the most, but maybe of more interest to many of our listeners is when are the clients reaching out to you most excited about in the new law? You mentioned transferability. So that's certainly one, but I don't know if you want to say anything more about that or are there some of the other provisions that you're finding clients are most excited about? Yeah, in terms of excitement, I think, you know, clients went to sleep thinking, ah, we have a 26% credit. <laughs> and then they woke up the next day <laughs> to a 30% credit. And, you know, some clients were even happier when they, you know, realized that their projects qualified for more of the bonus credits. And I think, you know, that quite frankly has a large impact on the industry in that it greatly improves economics. <laughs> and in some cases, it brings projects back from the dead. <laughs> I'm calling them zombie projects for now. <laughs> but yeah, projects that were marginal and couldn't quite pencil now get over the line. Some that are developing projects have started the process of revising their appraisals to see, you know, what sort of change this law has on the economics of their project and the amount of ITCs available, which directly ties in with the amount of investor proceeds that can be raised. So in some cases, talking to some of my developer clients, this is a pretty large, you know, windfall to their projects that they're planning to reinvest and build more projects in the future. So yes, anyways, <laughs> I could keep on going and going, but uh, well, maybe talk about the three-year carryback. I didn't really talk about that in the intro. Yeah. The three-year carryback is definitely something that I think a lot of investors are happy with and salivating over there. There was, you know, the past two years we've been in a pandemic. <laughs> And quite frankly, the industry wasn't able to meet the demand for renewable energy projects. So this three-year carryback is really helpful because it basically allows investors to go back and offset their tax liability. Now, granted, there's, you know, going to be, you know, some timing delays likely with getting or receiving payment from the IRS. But it definitely gives some of the investors out there who weren't able to, you know, get all the projects they wanted to have sort of a second bite at the apple, so to speak. So yeah, it's in, in a way greatly expanded tax appetite out there by allowing a carryback. It affects just uh, our listeners are clear. It affects both those that are thinking of investing now, if they can get the credits to be allocated them this year in the sense that they could go back three years to a pre-pandemic year, depending upon when you think the pandemic began, <laughs> but it also- You're Still trying to figure that out, right? <laughs> exactly. But also for those investors that have credits already, that maybe weren't going to be investing because they had credit carry forwards, this provision that, you know, creates an opportunity for them to get back into the credit investing market. Would you agree with that? That's right. Uh, yeah, it definitely <laughs> helps those investors that weren't able to time things perfectly. <laughs> and maybe before we move on to some other topics, maybe you could say a few words about the webinar that we're scheduling. Yeah, we're planning a series of webinars. I think we realized early on that one webinar <laughs> wouldn't be able to do the Inflation Reduction Act any justice. So we'll have a series of webinars taking deep dives into various topics, you know, probably have a variety of practitioners and industry participants involved because no one wants to listen to an accountant ramble on and on. 
But yes, our, the first part of the series of webinars will be sometime the week of September 12th. Great. Uh, conveniently before solar, everyone goes to Anaheim for Solar Power International. Oh, no. <laughs> Got it. Good deal. So I'm going to drill down one of the provisions of the new law. And now investment tax credits can be claimed on standalone storage, which wasn't the case before. So I'm sure some of the questions you're getting from solar developers is, well, now that I can claim credits on standalone storage versus having to combine storage with solar energy or real energy generated from solar, when should I do a combined project and when should I do a standalone solar project and standalone storage? Yeah, I think uh, the question of conjoining or not conjoining <laughs> has been coming up more than I, I thought it would over the last week or so. Yeah, I think, you know, as a whole, the standalone storage bill or storage provision was, you know, quite frankly, helpful because, you know, everyone was trying to, quite frankly, pair with solar or not, and then they wouldn't get the credit at all. So it, it's definitely beneficial for projects to get the 30% credit, no doubt. What's interesting is there's a few instances where conjoining actually may make sense. One of those is perhaps if you started on a solar project and the slower projects start of construction was before the prevailing wage window kicked in. It's possible to have, you know, battery storage attached to solar and perhaps the battery storage is, you know, not subject to those prevailing wage and apprenticeship requirements. There's additionally an environmental justice bonus available to solar and wind, and it does not apply to batteries, but it does apply when solar and wind are combined with the battery. So that's why, you know, conjoining or trying to combine the two might be beneficial in, in certain circumstances. And I'm sure there's a, a few fact patterns that I'm not thinking of or haven't come up yet <laughs> that will be discussed. You know, it just sort of reinforces the need to be working with experienced tax professionals that already know some of these details, or at least are in a position to be learning more in the course of their practice. So I did mention in the intro about the direct pay provisions that were included in this law. And, you know, these direct pay provisions were pared down for the options that were originally included in the Build Back Better Act. And I'm sure listeners are wondering you know, you know, when can they use them? When can they not? You know, I mentioned briefly about it's generally applicable for those entities that don't pay taxes, but maybe you could expand on the situations where you expect direct pay option to be a more effective execution. Yeah, that's a, a very relevant question right now. <laughs> and I guess the question is, you know, what is direct the direct pay option really an option. <laughs> it applies to tax exempts, government entities, as I alluded to earlier, and you know, quite frankly, allows these entities to more easily participate in renewable energy transactions. Before there were instances of you know it could be a house of worship or a school <laughs> having solar installed, and they would forego the credit. There was also a lot of instances where a PPA, a power purchase agreement, was the only option. But this now gives a, an ownership option to these entities. And I think a lot of folks in the industry sort of breathed a sigh of relief <laughs> when direct pay was sort of narrowed down from build back better. I think there was a lot of folks were around 10 plus years ago when there was the 1603 treasury grant program. And I think a lot of folks <laughs> were having reservations with potentially having direct pay be wider in scope. So in a lot of ways, the industry is, or, or members of the industry are happier with the way the direct pay provisions were structured. I probably should just note that the one downside of a tax exempt entity electing the direct pay option or structure around direct pay is there's a good chance that depreciation benefits will be lost. So there is a still a piece of economics that a lot of people consider that's sort of left off the table. 
So I, I think uh, I'm sure some smart tax attorney out there will figure out a way to <laughs> hopefully structure a transaction to not lose depreciation. But, you know, that's definitely, you know, one of the considerations that that pops on my mind. Sorry for rambling, Mike. <laughs> I think of it like this. When you hear about the direct pay option, the initial reaction is that this is a way to avoid the effort and the challenge of going through a syndication to monetize the credit. So direct pay would be an obvious first option. And when you have, as you said earlier, say a school where the solar installation is small and syndication isn't really an option, in the past, the opportunity to claim the credit is lost. For those situations, direct pay is a huge benefit. It makes the smaller size installations more financially feasible. For larger installations though, when you consider what you are noting about depreciation benefits and other factors, it is by no means a foregone conclusion that the direct pay option is the better option for taxes as opposed to monetizing the credits and effort attributes through syndication. There's certainly some who suggest that many, if not most, tax exempts will find that direct pay isn't the better option in terms of maximizing the financing available from the tax incentives, which would mean that you'll still see a very robust syndication market with tax exempts and state and local governments in spite of this direct pay option. We'll, of course, have to wait and see. And I know that that's something that the Renewable Energy Tax Credit Working Group will be working on in terms of working through the issues involved in weighing the pros and cons of various options. We can talk about the Renewable Energy Tax Credit Working Group a bit more later. I wanted to turn to the Section 45Q carbon sequestration credit and several others, because in lieu of being eligible for direct pay, absent the five-year direct pay that I mentioned in the intro regarding 45 cap Q, there is the ability to transfer credits to unrelated parties. That transfer feature came out of the policy idea that if you don't want to make the direct pay option available to all types of taxpayers, we'll take some of the credits and let them be separately transferable with the proceeds from transferring those credits not being considered taxable income to the recipient. What has been the reaction among your clients with respect to that option? Knowing, of course, that there are so many questions you can't really form a finalized analysis until some of those questions get answered. Yeah, I think there's a wide range of 45 cute projects that are out there. For instance, I haven't had an opportunity to work on a hydrogen project yet. But there's certainly a few 45Q projects out there. And while I think direct pay is a nice option, I do understand that, you know, there's those developers that need the capital sooner than later. <laughs> so, you know, waiting for direct pay and then the seven years of credits after direct pay ends isn't exactly an option. So. They, there may be some structures or alternative financings, maybe a lender might get involved who will help bridge direct pay and or those credits. And that, that might be helpful for these 45 Q developers. <laughs> There's other projects where a lot of folks point out that 45 Q uh, is in some ways found money, so to speak to the developers. There's already an existing project that was emitting carbon dioxide, for instance. And, you know, for some of those projects, I think they can definitely afford, you know, to wait for drug pay proceeds to come in. And I would hope that they reinvest that and <laughs> other green technologies at the end of the day. But there's definitely a variety of fact patterns out there that, you know, sort of drive the need for direct pay or not in some instances. So we've talked a bit about, you know, sort of additional bonus credits and the like, and, you know, I mentioned domestic content in the opening. So maybe you could talk about how a project sponsor would benefit from the bonus credits for domestic content. So domestic content has been a fairly popular question <laughs> as well, because there's a 10% bonus credit available for those projects meeting domestic content provisions. Now, I understand that it, it can get complicated in terms of what projects qualify for this bonus and that a lot of the materials that go into projects can come from a variety of sources, <laughs> some manufactured here, some partially manufactured 
globally. It's basically comes down to how a lot of projects are assembled in the USA <laughs> of global components at the end of the day. Now, uh, the, I, I found out from a smart tax attorney, I'll give them a plug from Stella Wilmer mentioned that the wording in the domestic content provisions come from the buy America, from the buy America act. And I attempted to read the buy America act this weekend, <laughs> but to say the least, it was a little bit complicated and I don't think I fully, fully gotten my arms around those provisions, but I suspect a lot of developers will be consulting with, you know, attorneys and specialists that are very familiar with the requirements of that act. Great. Thank you. Mike, if I could just jump in here for a second, there's another bonus available similar to that 10% bonus for domestic content. If your facility is located in your so-called energy community, and what an energy community is defines if you are a brownfield site or you were in a census tract that has a coal mine that was closed or a coal-fired electric power plant that was retired. If you're in, in a community that had significant amount of employment in uh, fossil fuel, or you're in a census tract that has an employment rate high above the national average in this year, then either of those circumstances enable you to get a 10% bonus as well. So uh, I think that's something you have to keep an eye out as well as you know, various ways you can uh, increase the value of the credits. So thank you for that, Peter. And before I actually switch over to Peter to talk about some of the housing provisions, Nad, I did want to ask you a more overarching question, and you can kind of take this question any way you want to take it, but what are some of the most interesting ways that you think this new law will affect the clean energy world? Yeah, it's definitely impactful, to say the least. I probably have said that a hundred times <laughs> during this podcast. There's what's interesting about this bill is, you know, it, it was really for legislation is that it, it was really trying to get ahead of technology. There's the technology neutral credits, 45Y, 48B. <laughs> I felt like in prior years, we were always trying to jam, I don't know, round peg and square hole, so to speak, with various technologies and trying to get them get it under something that sort of applied. Whereas here, there's the way the provisions are written, it's a lot more inclusive to new technologies. So I really think it was a leap forward in terms of trying to accommodate varying technologies that would be beneficial from a climate perspective. Some of which, you know, probably those technologies probably don't exist right now. So that's something that I look forward to. <laughs> I look forward to the new technologies that clients bring to us and we're <laughs> sort of scratching our heads trying to think about <laughs> what the technology is or asking to see a, a picture and maybe seeing something that looks like a flux capacitor. I don't know. So that that's something that excites me. And then there's other provisions in here that benefit uh, existing technologies that, you know, quite frankly, you know, could hit, haven't hit their critical mass, or maybe they were, you know, in a situation where the credits were being extended sometimes retroactively or year to year. Um, biogas is one of those technologies that I think historically has been <laughs> left out. A lot of times biogas had to produce electricity, so it could be scoped under section 45. Now, biogas projects can be used a lot more efficiently. Maybe they can produce, you know, something for transportation fuel. So anyways, I think a lot of the biogas developers, you know, those that have been able to survive <laughs> the past decade, were definitely looking at this bill. And I think we're going to see a, a wave of projects uh, finally come upon us in, in that space. But yeah, those are the few things that I find exciting here. <laughs> so you don't find all the unanswered questions exciting? <laughs> I definitely, I definitely find the uncertainty and 
ambiguity. That's another reason why the rural energy tax credit working group will play a key role in trying to get guidance and covering questions that need to be answered. They'll be putting together comment letters to Treasury to seek guidance and then help develop consistent interpretations around different issues while we're waiting for Treasury guidance. I often mention, as you both know, one of the key roles our working groups play is allowing various taxpayers to discuss issues and develop consensus views and then move forward with that consensus view as a herd, if you will, to go with the consensus view, of course, while you await guidance from Treasury. But obviously, we're not going to get guidance from Treasury in every area where we'd like. In some areas of guidance, it would be kind of like waiting for Godot. You're going to be there a while. So you definitely want to make sure that you're traveling with the herd, which, as I mentioned earlier, is a central role for our working groups. And then, as you mentioned, the webinars that will be coming up is another area to discuss some of the initial questions, some of the initial interpretations, as well as some of the consensus views that are unfolding and forming. So far, a lot of the issues we've talked about a bit with Nat and a few cameos from Peter. I would like to turn back to Peter, so it's less of a cameo. Uh, there are many clean energy provisions in the bill that work in concert with affordable housing and community development. Peter, if you could please share with the listeners which provisions you think are the most impactful and share some of the questions that remain outstanding for those provisions. And I will note, uh, before you speak, and for our listeners' sake, we will be discussing this area in much more detail in next week's podcast. Thank you, Mike. And I'll, just, I'll start to go just to reiterate, at the start of your introduction, there were a number of other affordable housing provisions that we were seeking in the legislation when it was being developed. At one stage, we had quite considerable provisions, so it really financed you know many hundred thousands of units of new affordable housing. And unfortunately, they didn't make the final version. But you know, as uh, you point out, there are a number of provisions in the clean energy as they intersect affordable housing, and they're quite significant. And I just also wanted, as a point of personal privilege, Novogratic was instrumental in getting these provisions included in the legislation. Mm -hmm. We got credit from the tax running committee staff for specifically on this regard. Uh, and so I think yeah. we're going to take a little bit of, a little bit of credit now that the legislation is financed or is enacted. So on, uh, you know, the two of the reasons you mentioned, uh, like the renewable energy investment tax credit and the uh, section 45 cap L new energy efficient home credit going forward, you no longer need to reduce basis by the, your housing credit basis, local housing tax credit basis by the amount of the ITC or 45 L, which is a great addition to see this is a permanent part of, or indefinite, I suppose I should say, part of the uh, tax code. And so you don't have to worry about the stop start that you often do with a lot of tax incentives. And that's a great achievement, making it facilitating the use of these energy incentives with affordable and housing to a great degree. And furthermore, there is now a bonus available for the ITC. We've mentioned quite a few bonuses on the course of this podcast. Well, there's yet another one you can add to all the ones we discussed previously. You know, if you're ITC facility is located in a low-income community, which is essentially defined as the eligible census tracts under uh, new markets tax credit and uh, you know Indians areas as well. If you are in those, you're eligible for a 10% bonus. Furthermore, if you are located, that facility is attached to covered federal affordable housing programs, which cover the broad you know, gamut of affordable housing programs, but most importantly, of course, including the local housing tax credit, you can, you're eligible for up to a 20% bonus. So when you add up all these potential bonuses, the case for adding solar panels, especially to a, a private activity bond financed property is pretty compelling. It all basically pays for itself to a large extent. And so that that is, you know, a great advantage. And with regards specifically on the 45L, we've gone from it being expired at the end of 2021, or eventually here in Vaughn Hayes, and it's suffered a, a number of these sort of stop-start 
situations over the years. Now we have a 10-year runway with enhanced credit amounts potentially available, ranging between $1,000 and $5,000 per unit, and a changed energy standard as well. So there's a lot more, I think, possible. You mentioned that 45L has been used in the past to some extent. There's, I think, a lot more possible uh, going forward uh, given this law. I'll just also note that the Section 179D deduction, you know, although it was you know, made permanent a couple of years ago, it, it changed the standards and it make it a lot easier to access it. And while it applies to commercial properties in general, it also one of the categories of most commercial properties in multifamily housing. And so that is something we expect a greater uptick in use with affordable housing. There's a lot that still needs to, we need to get guidance on Treasury in particular. There is a calendar year limitation on that 10% bonus for ITC facilities and long communities and the 20% bonus for ITC facilities on affordable housing. And basically, it's 1.8 gigawatts per calendar year. And we consider there's a five megawatt limit that you can have for that facility in these, for this eligible for the bonus, you know, you're talking about perhaps, you know, 360 buildings a year that can access this bonus. And so as soon as Treasury puts out guidance on allocating that one for the gigawatts, I'm sure it will go fairly quickly. And so encourage folks to keep an eye out. And I'm sure you're going to talk about this in greater detail next week. Like, but uh, something that LightTech working with is certainly going to be on sure focused on the way that reaches out treasury. Thank you for that, Peter. And as I mentioned, the Renewable Energy Tax Credit Working Group, uh, I've mentioned them quite a bit. I would just mention that the log of the Tax Credit Working Group will be addressing a number of these issues as well. And the combination questions of combining longest lane tax credits with some of these renewable energy provisions. And as I mentioned earlier, we'll discuss that in more detail in next week's podcast. And then there's other issues uh, in the Inflation Reduction Act that cut across some of the other working groups. Where I'm going to stop there, or stop here, I should say. Uh, and do I do wish we had more time to ask Peter and Nat more questions. There's a lot more that I'd love to ask uh, Peter and Nat about. But we've run a bit long already on this podcast. Uh, I knew that we would because this is such a monumental piece of legislation with so many different provisions. There's so much more to discuss. Uh, I do think that we've left our list of a lot of information. Uh, we've also posed a lot of questions and shared a lot of resources as to ways to get answers to those questions, not the least of which is participation in our various working groups, upcoming webinars, our Journal of Tax Credits, next week's podcast, future podcasts, and of course, our upcoming conferences. So let me just say thank you, Nat. Thank you, Peter. Please do stick around for our off-mic section at the end of the podcast. We get to ask you some fun off-topic questions uh, to seek your words of wisdom uh, and get other uh, guidance from each of you. And then to our listeners, please be sure to tune into next week's podcast. As we've made reference to many times in the course of this podcast, next week's podcast will be a deeper dive into combining rural energy with affordable rental housing. For that podcast, my partner, Brett Parker from Novogratz's Long Beach, California office will be our guest. Brett and I are going to look at the implications of these clean energy provisions for affordable housing developers. As Brett will discuss, and as Peter has mentioned already in this podcast, Inflation Reduction Act's provisions should incent affordable housing developers to at least consider using the investment tax credit for solar of their properties. And many will conclude it makes sense to include solar on their properties. And it's not just properties under development or under renovation. It could be also for existing properties that are many years in to their long the tax credit period or other you know, federal, federal or state assistance of the affordable housing property. During the podcast, Brent and I will look at what developers should consider when making the choice and go over some of the somewhat arcane aspects of blending the investment tax credit with the local real estate tax credit on a property under development or in operation. So in short, if you're involved in clean energy, 
This could be a series of potential clients. And if you're involved in full rental housing, this could be an opportunity to make a project more financially feasible. You'll certainly want to tune in. And you can make sure that you're notified of that episode and each week's episode by following or subscribing to the Task Group Tuesday podcast. Simply go to www.novaco.com slash podcast to subscribe to and stream the show on our website. You can also follow or subscribe to the Task Group Tuesday podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Republic. And if you're enjoying the podcast, I do encourage you to take a moment to rate the podcast. We would appreciate it here at Novogratix. And by rating the podcast, you make it easier for others to find the podcast. Now I'm pleased to reach our off mic section where listeners can get some off-topic advice and words of wisdom from our podcast guests. So Peter and Nat, you both work in fields that are constantly changing. Obviously, we've spent this whole podcast talking about a recent dramatic change, even though it was a dramatic change two years in the making. So I don't know if that's <laughs> an unexpected dramatic change two years in the making. <laughs> so you have multiple days competing for your time. So I was wondering how each of you ensure that you're working on the most important things, how you prioritize to ensure you're working on the matters that you yourselves find the most important. In a preparing for the podcast, we didn't identify who was going to speak first, but I think Nat looks like you're ready to speak first. I was going to ask a question, Mike. <laughs> Are you referring to to work, life, or both? <laughs> I thought I got to ask the questions. <laughs> the role of a question. <laughs> you're uh, This is why you're such a good advisor, because you know, uh, if I ask a question, you're like, well, actually, I need more specifics before I can answer your question. <laughs> so I would say, take the question, whichever direction you would like to take it. Whatever you think would be valuable for our listeners to hear you share. Yeah, I, I might have the same answer to both of them. I just wait until I get yelled at. Whether it be my clients, spouse. I know kid. better than that. Your clients never yell at you. <laughs> where, where my focus should be <laughs> a lot of times. And I appreciate that. I guess I'll jump in. You know, Mike, I've talked in the previous podcast about trying to really focus on the most essential emails because there's so much. Obviously, I'm not going to reuse that one, but I will say that that's actually a question that brought this in my mind. I do think you're more effective at your work when you have a good, in my opinion, a good work-life balance. So I try to make sure I focus entirely at work when I'm in my work time. And then when I do my transition to home, I try very much to focus on those because if you're going to try to do both, when that line is blurred, I think you, both areas suffer, right? And so I think, yes, and especially the pandemic has kind of somewhat blurred these lines. And I found that it really is important to try to, you know, be, ha, make sure that you're fully present in either your work or your personal life as much as possible and not try to mix them up too much. Really like that advice, particularly your insight about the pandemic, because even pre-pandemic, you know, that was, you know, a common view that you should, you know, be present wherever you're at and focus on one or the other. And you can't focus on two things at the same time. You really can't multitask. You're just uh, bouncing back and forth. But the but then when you went into the office and all the rest, it was much more division. And with so much working at home during the pandemic, it, that's been a greater challenge. And if you don't remind yourself of it, you lose sight of that. It's not only part of what it is that you do. How about you, Nat? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, the lines between work and life definitely get blurred, but there's, there definitely needs to be some, <laughs> some boundaries, that's for sure. And uh, I don't know, I credit my family members for making sure that I respect those boundaries. <laughs> <laughs> the most politically correct way I can say it. <laughs> and pretty accurate too, I'm sure. So, you know, something else that, you know, I always, you know, you know, wonder how I can travel a little bit better. I travel a lot. And one of the things that, you know, various travel magazines will often have is a section on travel hacks. And it's, I always enjoy reading those sections in terms of various sort of travel hacks. And, you know, over the summer, my travel hacks relate to personal travel. Coming up in the fall, when we start our Never Got a Conference, I'll be traveling a lot more as I know both of you will be. So maybe you could share as a travel tip or two or travel hack or two in terms of ways to make travel less of a burden or make travel easier. 
I'm kind of interested in what Cheater has to say, just coming back from Europe. <laughs> uh, well, I, this does apply to both personal and work travel. My, this is not going to be any particularly shocker, Mike, but you know, with all the devices we sort of depend on in our lives, making sure you have a, a fully charged battery, it's, I don't know, you, you think, well, of course you're going to have an opportunity to charge things, maybe on a plane or maybe in the airport or where you don't always, it's all sometimes very difficult. And so not having you know, just one battery, but a couple of batteries can be really helpful when you've got that unplanned delay and you're sitting somewhere where there's nowhere you can have your device charged. It's so, so important. So I know some people think, well, maybe that's the time when you can disconnect, especially for personal travel, but you know, it, it's so helpful. So many things, you know, various alerts about what's happening with your travel are given to our devices. So that having those batteries, I find is really crucial. Well, plus some of your travel hack might be to bring a Kindle or an iPad to read books. <laughs> and that might be your alone time as you're reading your book on your iPad or your Kindle and without power. <laughs> it's a bad day. Indeed. Absolutely. Yeah. I think I need to find N95 masks that have like some sort of comfortable, like your pad or something. <laughs> Well, the last few flights that I've gone on, well, once the one time I didn't wear a mask or wasn't fully masked up, I caught COVID. <laughs> so that taught me a lesson. So now I mask up all the time. And I think maybe a more comfortable N95 mask would be a little bit, make it a little bit more bearable if it's not trying to cut my ears off. Well, I definitely, you know, the one thing that you talked about the COVID and you know, wearing the N95 mask to avoid COVID, but I actually like the fact that now it were acceptable to be wearing masks in flight. It was always, you know, something that some people did, but I myself would give in to peer pressure and not feel it all that comfortable wearing a mask. And now, you know, for COVID reasons, obviously being beyond COVID, I mean, we all have the stories that when travel season started, it usually meant that's when the flu season is going to start for you and you're going to catch a cold and all the rest. So even in spite, even without, you know, COVID, it's like, I still, you know, obviously COVID is still here, but even if COVID wasn't here, the notion of wearing a mask while I'm traveling to avoid the flu, and at least not avoid, but at least help minimize, you know, how much it minimizes, we can get a bunch of theoretical debates, but, you know, I do think it minimizes it. <laughs> so that's a nice, you know, a nice change. I entirely agree with you, Mike. I think I, I would always pick up some thickness or during travel pre-pandemic and I'm pretty religious about wearing masks when on the plane and in airports and well, since I've done that I haven't gotten the flu I haven't gotten colds like I used to during travel season so I think it matters uh, you know to a large extent I'm happy to be even if it's one of only three people on the plane that's you know people want to face me I'm going to continue to do that and that by the way I, I do think as far as I used to have N95 masks go around the ears, and I've stopped doing that because they're less comfortable. I'm the one that they go over the top of your head. It's much. I, those rubber bands hurt. <laughs> no, but at least after eight hours, those rubber bands, I think, started uh, pulling out hair. <laughs> but if it's not just on your ears, the back of the head, it's to me. At That's least, true. It's, it's, it's slightly better. <laughs> Another travel hack that I can't recall that mentioned on a podcast is. One that I thought, Peter, you were headed towards, and you talked about having your devices. I thought you were going to say, in addition to having power, you're going to say the right adapter. <laughs> true, true. That's... I, and I've gotten into the habit now of carrying the multi-prong adapters. So I, I can carry three or four adapters, and I can, no matter what which type of device I need to charge, like I have an adapter for it, so I don't find myself marshalling through, you know, which adapter I have and that it wears that adapter and all the rest. I just have these multi-prong adapters. So I definitely would encourage listeners to use those, travel with those. Well, just like I have a bag for toiletries, you know, you have to put in, you used to new for, uh, well, I say I have a bag for all my chargers. So I just keep all in that one bag and carry it with me wherever I go to make sure I don't have to search for it. It's all in that little bag. Yeah, you're not going to remember that uh, running to the airport at like 3 a.m. <laughs> so thank you again. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Nat. I uh, look forward to chatting with you again on the upcoming webinar. 
And to our listeners, I'm Mike Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast. Novogratik and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.